Well, I, I am often blown away by the way that uh, God orchestrates these services and uh, brings together all the different pieces to it. Because this morning, um, I, I want to open with the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we really just sang that, and that was um, not intentional but just God working through all these pieces. So the Heidelberg Catechism um, was the first catechism written post-Reformation, and it was not necessarily uh, a great time to be a Christian. I mean, it was an amazing time as the gospel was going out and new truths were um, being applied, but also a hard time. Yet these words speak to the heart. Question number one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Question number two, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. What amazing truths for us. And while these are so good and life-giving, it can be hard at times to actually apply that to your life and, and walk in that and live in that and really feel that to be true. This is great knowledge, but... In our world, what comfort do we have? What joy, what hope do we have in this world? Lamentations confronts these questions. So today we're going to be in Lamentations 3. And as as the name of the book indicates, Lamentations teaches us to lament and to weep well. It teaches us to confront sin, to confront hardship. And in the the very middle of this book, it also teaches us how to face it and walk through it in light of the goodness of God. It has one of the greatest turnarounds in all of Scripture, this chapter, from the absolute darkest of darks to the most glorious light. And the beauty of this is that it's really, it's really easy to find yourself in it. We can really connect with that because we've all experienced things that are difficult. We all have fallen into sin. And though we may not experience what Israel did in this book, as we'll see, we do struggle. Sin is real. Hardship is real. Life can be hard, but God is good. Now, before we jump into it, though, before you jump into a book one Sunday and uh, on top of that, jump into the middle of a book and even further into the middle of a chapter, we really need some context for that. Um, Otherwise, we end up with, you know, the greatest 90s movie intro where everything is falling apart and going to shambles and then it freezes and is like, I, I bet you're wondering how I got in this situation. That's where we're left if we just start reading Lamentations 3. So we don't want that. So how did Israel get here? 
Well, Lamentations is a small book. It's between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And like many of the prophets, it's filled with harsh judgment, but also mighty grace. But unlike many of the other prophets, it's not calling to repentance in light of future judgment. The judgment has come. It is upon them. They have gone through it. They're in the midst of it. So now the question that must be answered is what is Israel going to do in response to this? Where are they going to go from here? Where is their comfort and hope going to lie? What are they going to look to? And what we're about to read is, I'm going to say Jeremiah. It's likely Jeremiah who wrote this book. Uh, We're not for sure on that, but for, you know, just ease this morning. I'm going to say Jeremiah. It's his view of the destruction of Jerusalem by the hands of the Babylonians. Now, the city was besieged. It was ransacked. It was in ruins. The people exiled. The temple burned down. People starving. Parents eating their own children to stay alive. Thousands brutally murdered. So with that, let's turn to Lamentations chapter 3. It is on page 688 in your ESV or Bible um, on the chair or behind me here. Lamentations chapter 3. Now the I, as we read through this, like I said, is likely Jeremiah. And the he, get this, is God. And that's Going to seem crazy as we read it, but the he is God. So, verses 1 through 16. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set as a target for set for me, set me as a target for his arrow. Sorry. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with warm word. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. Jeremiah is left broken, weeping without hope. These are God's people experiencing some of the most horrific things you could possibly go through. They are utterly hopeless in the world. Sin left them this way, and they have nowhere to turn. God has turned his back on them. Where do they go from here? What do they do? 
Let's read the next couple of verses, 17 through 20. My soul is bereft of peace, and I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope for the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood of my gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. Now I want to stop for a second and ask this question. Take, take a second to consider. As we read that, have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever felt left without peace, without happiness? God was against you. Do you feel like that today, this morning? It could be through choices you've made, through the consequences of sin like Israel, turned on God, left devastated. It leaves us the same way. It could be financial. It could be sickness or a job or family, or maybe you're just tired and spent and done. In a world of brokenness, all of these things can make us feel that way, can leave us feeling devastated. You see, we live in a broken world with sin and hurt and disappointment. So if you don't feel like that today, you have in the past and you will again. That's the reality of the world that we live in. It's a good way to start a sermon, right? Get everyone depressed. Consider your sin. Consider the hardships of life. But we aren't promised a, a, a pain-free life. We aren't promised a life without burden. Life can leave us like this. It can leave us in the ruins as it left Israel. We aren't a perfect people. We fall into sin. We turn our backs on God. When you look at your life, maybe you see that. Maybe you see sin that just won't relent. Maybe you see God is distant from you. Maybe you see sickness and pain or a broken family. Maybe like Jeremiah, you look around and you're just simply overwhelmed by the mess of it all. Where do we go from here? The world and all of its evil. Well, in the middle of all this, in the midst of this, with all this before Jeremiah's eyes, in the ruins and the pain and the sin and the death, he calls something to mind. He calls something to mind. And it completely changes everything. So let's read the next couple of verses. Verses 21 to 24. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Where is God in all this? How do we see God in all of this? How do we have hope, especially when it's hard and we're living in ruins? Well, like Jeremiah, we must see God's covenant faithfulness. <clears throat> In all things. <clears throat> Sorry. See God's covenant faithfulness in all things. His steadfast love. Jeremiah calls this to mind the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And in a world of constant change and turmoil, this stands true 
and unwavering, the goodness of God. We know that. If you are a believer this morning, God has covenantally joined himself to you, and he will eternally be faithful to that. He was not done with Israel. He is not done with you this morning. Every day you you pick your head up off the pillow, you can count on absolutely nothing from this world. You can't count on anything from yourself. You may lose your job tomorrow. You may lose all of your possessions in a fire. You may lose your life on I-45 because it's crazy. People say the only things you can count on in life is death and taxes. Well, we are eternal people, and people evade their taxes. So, I'm going to say, and I, I mean this truly, the only thing you can count on in life, the only thing, is that the mercies of God are new every morning. They are new every morning. You woke up this morning, and His mercies were there for you again. You can't run them dry. And because of that, Jeremiah proclaims, Great is your faithfulness, O God. To a people who are faithless, to a people who turn their back on you, great is your faithfulness to them, to us this day. But wait, this scene that we just read, Israel being absolutely destroyed and having nothing left, their backs turned on God in every conceivable way, putting other gods before him, abandoning their law, They spurned God and now are clinging for life itself if they have it. They don't have a daily portion of anything. They have no food. They have no hope. Yet Jeremiah says what? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. See, in the midst of hardship, call to mind God's love, his mercies, and his faithfulness to you. That you may abandon God, but he will not abandon you. What does this do for us? It restores hope. Therefore, I will hope in him. It reminds us that we're aliens and foreigners in this world, yet we are at home with God. He holds us in his very hands. We have absolutely no hope apart from Christ. We are devastated. We are a besieged city burning. We are a starving and dying people without the goodness of God in our lives. Hope is found in the, in the mercies of God. And as I spent time considering this this weekend, I was just overwhelmed by the beauty of the change in Jeremiah's mind here. From utter darkness and damnation to glorious light, the goodness of God, and even this. And in that, another passage came to mind, one that we often turn to in love, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's where we're left. 
but God. But God being rich in mercy, great because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, he saved us from the darkest hour. And the first 20 verses of Lamentations 3 describes not only the hopelessness of this world, but what it's like without Christ. God's utter hatred of sin. This is us left without him. Stripped naked and cast into darkness. But God. But God sent Christ to bear it. He went under the rod of wrath. Verse 1. He was walled in without escape. Verse 7. He cried for help. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his prayer was shut out. Verse 8. He was torn to pieces and left desolate on a cross. Verse 11. He became a laughing stock and was hung as he hung and people passed by. Verse 14. He was left without peace or happiness. His soul was bowed down within him and he died. Verse 20. And now we stand on the other side of that. We now stand and we look to Christ and we see the steadfast love of God for us that never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness towards us that he would send his son to die in our place when we abandoned him and undeserving people. So what does that mean for us today? What does that mean now? We're now, as believers, we're living on the other side of this. You may feel alone, but God's love is steadfast towards you. You may feel beaten down and stuck. God's mercies are new every morning. You may feel abandoned, but great is his faithfulness towards you. You may feel spent without hope. God is your portion and your hope this morning. See, we are given, we are given a daily portion, a daily portion to walk in that hope. And as you walk through life, a life that isn't always easy, a life that isn't always fair, a life that is hard and confusing at times, one where you can feel distant from God, we look to Christ and we praise him for what he has done on our behalf. We have this hope. We have this good knowledge, this life-giving knowledge. Yet, what do we do with that? How do we take this knowledge and put it to practice? Because that hasn't taken away the struggle, right? This is great knowledge, but it gained my salvation. It's given me hope. Praise God. But I'm still here. My hardship is still here. I still struggle. I still lose hope. So where do we go from there? What do we do with that? How do we put that knowledge to work in our lives? Let's read on. Verse 25 to 29. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. 
It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. How do you think Jeremiah felt sitting there? Sitting there, seeing all of these things, the most horrific things, gruesome things. He looked to God and he remembered the goodness. Yes, he did that. But then what? What changed in front of him? Nothing. The city was still ruined. The people were still starving. They were still devastated. God didn't miraculously put the city together. He didn't raise the dead or heal all of the sick. He didn't set a table of fine food before them so that they could eat. So what did Jeremiah do? He waited upon the promised salvation of the Lord. He sat. He trusted in the faithfulness of God in that moment, that it would come, that he was for him, that God wasn't done with Israel in that moment. God had more for them. They were his cherished and beloved people. He wasn't going to let them completely or ultimately be done away with. His mercy was still, still shed on them. His faithfulness was still true. Even in their absolute worst times, even in the ugliest of times for, for Israel. Even when they were far from God, God was still God. This day would end. They would wake up the next the sun would rise, they would still be there, so would their problems. But God's mercies would be shining still. They could turn to God and trust that he is there. And Jeremiah was looking not only to the present grace of God, but to the promise of a glorious future. So how do we continue to hold on to hope when life is hard, when we're living in the ruins? Like Jeremiah, we wait on and seek God through all things. We wait on and seek God through all things. The problem is we aren't good at this. We aren't good at waiting, are we? We want answers and we want resolutions and we want them now. It's very hard for us to see past our present situations. We want to say, okay, God, I get it. You can end this now. I understand. Let's get over with it. Let's go back to the way it was before. I know I messed up. I realize that. Let's go back now. We do this with sin. We fall into sin again and again, and we know it. And then we say, I, I did it again, God. I yelled, and I got angry again. I looked at that again. I had those thoughts again and those, those feelings again, Lord. But okay, God, I repent. Take away this guilt. Draw me close to you. Let's move past it until next time. Let's not worry about it. We do this with fear. We take our eyes off of Christ, off of his faithfulness. We lose hope in who he is. God, why aren't you listening? Why don't you seem to be there? You're not working fast enough for me. You're not fixing my problems. You're not healing me. You're not taking away my anxiety. Come on, God, work faster. Move faster. We do this with control. 
Why isn't he making my kids act right? Why can't I get the job or make the money I want? Why isn't God saving my friends or my family members that I've been praying for? Things aren't working out the way I want them. God's faithful, but I'm going to have to get the job done myself, right? Jeremiah says, the Lord is good to those who what? Who wait for him. Who wait upon him. Why? Because there's trust in waiting. There is belief in waiting. There is reliance in waiting upon God. We don't learn those things from getting everything the moment we want it, how we want it. Waiting is difficult because while you sit, it can feel like nothing's happening. It can feel like the landscape is the same. Because it likely is. But your only hope is to look to the faithfulness and hope found in Christ. Now, what does this not mean? Sitting, waiting, and trusting God doesn't mean you do nothing. It doesn't mean you just sit there and give up. It's not licensed to say, hey, lost my job. I trust God. I'm going to watch Netflix until I get another one. Or to say, you know, I I keep falling into the same sin, but, you know, God forgives me, so I'm not going to make, you know, any plans to fix it and keep from doing it the next time. Or to say, yeah, yeah, God, I, I mentally trust you. So I don't need to read. I don't need to pray and to dig in. I don't need the strength to walk in that. I can say those words. It says the Lord is good to those who wait for him, but also what? Who seeks him. So the soul who seeks after him. Again, Israel had to wake up the next day in the ruins, and they had to go to work because they had messed up. And they had to get to work. They needed to seek after their God, not just with their intellect, but with their ways as well. They were in this because they weren't seeking after him. They had all of the knowledge in the world. They were a people who greatly knew the law. They knew more about God than anyone. Yet where did that leave them? They didn't seek after their God. We're often impatient with God, thinking he isn't upholding his end of the deal, yet are we taking the time to seek after him ourselves? To seek him first, quietly, sitting, reading, praying, learning who God is, and then getting up and walking in that knowledge, in those truths. We trust his faithfulness, And then he calls us to walk in that faith of who he is. To put the struggles at his feet and walk through it. Wait and seek. Both of these take trust. Both of these take patience. And both of these take work. You know, there are some epic stories in the Old Testament of grieving. And that's good. Think Job. But the next day, you get up and you walk in that faith. You walk into it, even if it's 
and unknown. You know, many of you know the struggle that my family has been through the last year as Dara has walked through sickness. It's been a year of frustration and unknowns and a lot of waiting and a lot of seeking. And almost 12 months later, we're still here waiting and not knowing what the next months could look like. So how long do you wait? How long do you seek before you give up? Does waiting always end when we want it, how we want it? What does that do to our view of God? These are hard truths to wrestle with and, and consider, and, and I know that we're not alone in having to do that. I know many of you have as well over the last year. Is God good? Is he faithful? Is he merciful? Is he loving if the waiting doesn't end today? If it doesn't end the way I want it, do we give up hope in God? No. Doesn't mean it's easy, but remember, his mercies are new every morning. So if this is a every morning routine where we get up and we have to fall at his feet again, praise God. His mercies are there every morning. Give me the strength this day to walk in you, to walk in faith. Because hope doesn't equal the absence of hardship or pain or sin. It yet remains. But we put our trust in the one who is faithful. We wait on him while we seek after him. Because without that, without that, we are hopeless. We are dead in our sins. This is the way the world leaves us. The world is insane we're going to see that as we go through this cultural apologetics class. The world has no hope. It never did, but it's more evident now than ever. So where are we going to place our hope? What are we going to seek after? If it's in the world, you will end up at verse 17, without peace, without happiness, with nothing left. But if it's in the Lord, in Christ, you will get to verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord. It endures forever. Sin still has its consequences. The world is still evil. It's still hard. You face the same circumstances either way. The same struggles. The landscape hasn't changed the city and the world are still in ruins, yet they have very, very different outcomes. Choose this day whom you will serve. Look to and see God's faithfulness. Wait on and trust in his timing. But as we walk in that trust, a question remains, a question that we definitely should ask that I know we do ask in it, why? Why? We know God's good. We know God's faithful. So why? I'm trusting him. I'm walking in him. I'm seeking after him. Doesn't God have the ability to make this end? Doesn't God have the ability to make the world good? To end all evil and sin? To make my life better? 
Why am I still going through this? Why is the world like this? Why are there yet consequences for my sin? I think Jeremiah recognizes this. He knows this tension. So there's one more point that he makes before breaking off into the second half of the chapter. He considers the goodness of God amidst the hardship, and then what? Read with me, verses 37 to 41. It says, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. How do we have a right view of God in hope and in light of hardship? Well, like Jeremiah, we must understand that God has ordained and has purpose for all things. He is ordained and has purpose for all things. Remember now, back in the first 18 verses, who the he was. That was God. Jeremiah doesn't wonder where God is or who is doing this. God is there. God is orchestrating it. So the question is why? To answer this, I, I want to turn to the Heidelberg Catechism one last time because I think it has one of the fullest, greatest descriptions of the providence of God. So question 27 what do we understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? If, if life is out of God's control, we have much to fear. We have no hope. We don't know what's going to happen. Yet because God providentially is working all things, we stand on a firm foundation, even if it looks messy sometimes. Realize that no matter where you are today in that, rich or poor, healthy or sick, fruitful or barren, ease or trials, peace or unrest, it all comes not by chance, but by God and his fatherly hand. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Verse 38. The good, the good we can accept, right? We get that. God wants me to be happy. He wants good for me. He wants me to prosper. Well, when he does that, are we viewing it as from the hand of God? See, this was Israel's problem. They trusted on God until they were comfortable, and then they thought, we're great. We can do this on our own, and they turned their back on him. It's easy to think of God as giving the good, but it's difficult to stay reliant on him when he does give it. What about 
the bad? What about the hardship? What could God possibly be doing through a difficult season? What's the purpose? That's what we want to know. Well, let's look back at verses 31 through 33. I skipped these on purpose because I think they are especially meaningful in light of what we just read. The fact that God ordains all things, he has purpose in all things. Now these verses. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So what is this saying? Now we know God isn't cruel and vindictive. Yet, it says he does afflict and he does trouble. So how do we put those truths together? See, while it is from God, it is not his heart. That is a beautiful truth, that it is not God's heart to afflict you. Realize it doesn't say he doesn't do that. It says that it isn't his heart. And that's why the end of the Heidelberg Catechism is so important. That line, it is from his fatherly hand. It means that it is not simply ordained, but it is purposeful, fatherly purpose in all things, with intention. That should give comfort. See, your life isn't out of control, even when it feels like it, and you aren't in control of your life, even if you want to be. Neither of those things are true. God is accomplishing all of his purposes through you. Through your success, through your difficulty, through your failure. God is in control. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He will accomplish everything he purposes to. In light of this purpose, to grow, to teach us, to point us back to him as it was for Israel. That is why we see these first 20 verses. They had gone far from God. And in light of that, God's heart in inflicting them was to turn their hearts back to him. To see that he was their only hope in life and death. Their ultimate good. That's our ultimate good too. So in light of that, what could God be teaching you today? What is God's heart for you through the hardship you may be facing? Consider a few. Like Israel, to hate sin and to weep over it well. Or to long for God, not the things of this world. To long after God. To hope in Him. If everything is taken from you, where would your hope be? Again, think Job. Where did his hope lie? He lost it all. To trust God alone, not our works, not anything we can do. To rely upon God, not our abilities and what we're capable of doing. To praise God for who God is and not what he can give you or what you can possibly gain from him because he is good. To see his mercies and faithfulness anew especially when we need them every morning. Maybe to take your eyes off this world and put them on God. What are you enthralled with? 
Is it God or is it the things of the world? So in verse 20, Jeremiah calls us to stop and sit in order to examine and test our ways. It's a good thing to stop and consider. Where is my heart at? Am I following after God? Are my intentions for God? Which ultimately are my good and his glory. Is that, is that where my heart's at? Is that what I'm living for? Is that the ultimate goal of my life? And then the result of that testing is what? Verse 41. That we lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We praise him. We turn back to him and we praise him with not only our hearts but our hands. Waiting and seeking. Total dependence on God. Total praise and worship of God in all things. The good and the bad. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are wiser than I am. That you are better than I am. That you know what I need. So we hope and we trust in God. For he is working all things. He is over everything. Help me to faithfully seek after you as you are faithful to me. Humble me enough to consider what you are trying to teach me this day. We don't like to humble ourselves that way. Lord, what can I learn from this? What are you doing? What are you doing in the good seasons? What are you doing in the bad seasons? With what you've given me or what you haven't given me, Lord, what are you doing in my life? How can I use that and turn that around for your praise and your glory, for my betterment? Thomas Watson said it like this, Affliction is a bitter root, but it bears sweet fruit. For our takeaway this morning, I'm going to turn that around and say, Though it may come by a bitter root, God's purpose is for you to bear sweet fruit. Though it may come from a bitter root, God's purpose is that you would bear sweet fruit in all things. Let's pray.